Our reading this morning is from Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 through 2 and 12 through 17. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor, you shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, good morning. If you weren't here with us last week and you're wondering why is it that we were reading the Ten Commandments but only came up with six, that's because last week we read the first four and considered those. And so this Sunday we get to kind of finish this look really briefly at the Ten Commandments. But before, before we do that, would you please join with me in a prayer? Father, we remember how uh, when these words were first spoken, your people were gathered around this mountain and you from fire and smoke spoke in such a way that absolutely terrified them. And we remember even more that even though right now there is no smoke or fire, you are no less present here with us. And it is no less true that you are speaking to us right now. So, Father, we ask, please help us to hear. We want to be shaped by you. We want to know you. We want to worship you faithfully. Please instruct us. Help me to speak faithfully and clearly that together we more and more would be the people you have created us to be. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as I've been considering uh, the last six commandments this past week and how it relates even to the Ten Commandments, it, it occurs to me that what we have in these verses is one of the great surprises in all of Scripture. Now, I don't think we actually oftentimes notice the surprise. There's a danger in familiarity. When you've seen something again and again, you stop seeing it completely. And even when we do see it, I think we tend to forget it. There is a surprise in the Ten Commandments about worship. Now, backing up, you know, if you've been with us the last few weeks, you know, worship has been what we have been thinking a lot about. And I, I am hoping that you are, are with me in realizing that worship is something that is incredibly relevant. It's not a word that's just describing kneelers and hand-raising and what happens within the walls of a church. Worship is what it looks like to have a life that is devoted to God. When we say, how do I please God? How do I give my life to God? We are asking a question about worship. And if we just think for a moment about life, and we step back and see things as truly and as carefully as we can, we will, I think, realize that there really isn't a more significant, more important question than that. How do I please God? How do I worship God? I mean, he's the one who gave you life. He's the one who saved us. Everything we have, we owe to him. He's the one 
in whom is found all joy. He's the one who gives our life purpose. How do we live a life that pleases God? On our last day when we are dying, we are not going to ask the question of whether we should have taken that promotion. We're not going to think through whether or not we should have finally done another revision and fixing up our kitchen. We will ask, have I lived well? And that's just another way of asking, have we been living a life that is pleasing to God? Now, when the Ten Commandments were given, we need to recognize God's people have been rescued from Egypt, and they barely really know their God, and that question is probably one that they're preoccupied with. What does it look like to please God? What does it look like to worship Him? And God doesn't leave them in in confusion. When He brings them to Himself to meet with Him, He gives them these ten words, these ten instructions that are primarily instructions about worship. This is what it means to be my people, for me to be your God. And here's where the surprise is found. The first four commandments are probably less surprising. They're what we would expect. They're instructions about what it looks like to love the God, God with all of your heart, how to honor him. But then God says, and here's what it means to love me. I want you to love each other well. Now, maybe that doesn't feel like a surprise, but I think that's only because we're so accustomed to that idea. But if you think about it, that is absolutely not the way it had to happen. In fact, if you think of other religions, other visions of God or understandings of God that we see, we don't see that pattern. So think about the Greek gods. If you know much about Greek gods, about Zeus and Helen or whatnot, they do not give like a Ten Commandments, right? All they really care about is that you make sure that you offer offerings to them and that you honor them and probably that you love them more than you love other gods, but they really could not care less whether or not you love each other well. But, but that's not how we see God. God says, if you are going to love me, if you are going to worship me, here's what it looks like to worship me. It means loving each other well. And that echoes throughout all of Scripture. Jesus in the New Testament, when someone asked him, what is the greatest commandment? Which is another way of saying, how do I please God? Jesus says the greatest commandment is to love God with all of your being, with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. Now, again, I think we have heard this so frequently they don't realize there's something confusing about what Jesus is saying. It would appear actually to be a contradiction. If I am supposed to love God with all of my being, that is, without remainder, everything is to be devoted to God, then I don't really have space for loving anyone else, right? But Jesus says the second is like it, and what he is saying is that if you love God rightly, then that will overflow in love to others. The two have to go together. Imagine there is a couple, a, a man has fallen in love with a, a, a single mother of a young child. And as that relationship progresses, if it is a mature relationship where, where it is really love, and as that man is coming to really care about that woman, it is the most natural thing for him to start caring about that child. Because if he really loves her, he will love what she loves. And he will also love this child because when he looks at this child, he sees a reflection of the mother that he loves so much. 
And that's how it works with God. Scripture tells us that miraculously, beyond our understanding, God loves each of us in this world beyond our capacity even to understand. And what's more, that each of us, no matter how corrupted or broken we are, we bear his image. We, we in some ways, reflect God. And so if God loves us that deeply, it is inconceivable that if we love God, we would not also learn to love those that he loves so much. That we would not also come to recognize that as we see the face of another, we're seeing in some ways a reflection of God and love them. This is the surprise of the Ten Commandments. Here's what it means to worship me. You are going to love me with all your being, and you are going to love others well. Again, if it doesn't seem new to you, if that just seems intuitive, that's, that's great, but I want to suggest that it is still something that you and I are inclined to forget. In my experience, it is all too easy to give ourselves in passionate praise on Sunday and then be incredibly cruel to our employees on Monday. It is an easy thing to be devoted to God in our spirituality but completely leave him alone when it comes to our sexuality. It is an easy thing to believe we are giving ourselves in love to God and yet completely to be poor at loving others. And God says, that's not how it works. If you want to worship me, if you want to love me with all of your being, in the most practical sense, what it is going to look like is you loving others. You might notice those first commandments, those first four, were in some ways more about principles, about how we understand God and how we bear his name. And then these last six is, let me give you specific instructions of what it means to love me with all your being. And they get really practical. And so in our remaining time, I, I wish we had time to look at each of these six commandments and really think through just how practical they become, how, how much worship is just part of the mundane, small things of our life, but we only have time to look at two. So I'd like first to, to consider the sixth commandment. You shall not murder. In Hebrew, it's even simpler. Don't murder. Now, Jesus helps us when we consider what God is saying in this instruction to realize that this is more than just a literal command about murder. Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, says, you've heard it say, do not murder, and let me tell you, that's not just about taking life. He says, anytime you, in your anger, call someone idiot, you fool, you have committed murder in your heart. You are breaking this command to worship whenever you even, in your anger, call someone another name. And here's the reason. When we call someone another name, we are making them, in our sight, in our thoughts, less human. We're making them below us. And to put someone to death is fundamentally an act of dehumanizing. In fact, if you think about it, almost every time we can think of great atrocities that are committed in our world, slavery and the Jim Crow laws, the Holocaust, the countless deaths that we see in abortions that are happening even now. And in each situation, what has happened is people 
who are God's image bearers have been considered less than human. They've been dehumanized. There has been first murder in the heart before it has worked out in murder in terms of actual physical reality. And so what the sixth commandment is saying is that we, we must not diminish the humanity of others. Now this gets really practical really quickly if we have honesty with ourselves because the reality is it is it is far easier than we even would like to acknowledge to dismiss people in our minds, in our hearts, when we find them irritating or inconvenient. In anger, we, we really can say, you know, he, that person's an idiot. Oh, what a jerk that person is. And when we're doing that, we are saying he doesn't belong to the class that I'm in. He is somehow or she is somehow less than I am. And we are choosing to forget the reality that this is a person who is loved by God in his image, one that we have an obligation to show love and respect towards. Sometimes it's not even anger. Sometimes it's apathy. I'm, I'm troubled by the reality that it is such an easy, it's a, I think much easier at times, at least we see this at a cultural level, to be concerned and compassionate when we hear about school shootings in suburbs than to really feel that same level of concern when we hear about shootings that are taking place in the inner city. And why is that? It's because the former, those people are more like us, more like us in lifestyle, more like us in skin color, and the latter, in some subtle way, feels just a little bit less like us. In contemporary conversation, what this is spoken of is, is it, it means to other someone. We, we other people when we don't think they are one of us, that they are somehow less in some sense. So, so we other our classmates when we only think of them as that irritating person that I can't stand rather than thinking about them as, as someone who also is struggling to have friends. We, we other our, our boss when all we can think about is the way that the boss is not a good boss and irritates us rather than realizing that that boss is under a lot of pressure and is, is struggling and has his own desires. We, we other our neighbor who has the nicer house, the nicer car, the nicer clothes that we start judging rather than realizing that they are people just like us, that we each are people who cry, who struggle, who love, who dream, and even more importantly, who are loved by God. And, and when God says, you shall not murder, he is calling us in our worship of him to passionately, stridently avoid othering. To, to recognize that every person that God has put in our pathway is not someone who is other, but someone who is our neighbor. 
mean, isn't that the point of, of the parable of the Good Samaritan that Jesus tells? You might remember you have this person who basically is asking when Jesus says, and what you, you know, second great commandment is to love your neighbor as yourself. And then the person says, so, but who is my neighbor? And basically he's saying, who can I treat as one of my own? And who are the others that I don't have to be concerned about? And so Jesus talks about how there's this person who is robbed and beaten, is on the road and is helpless and is dying. And we know what happens. We know that, you know, the priest comes by and chooses to go to the other side and not look. The Levite goes by, chooses to go to the other side and not look. And in each situation, what are they doing? They're saying, that person's not, not like me. I don't, I don't need to feel a responsibility for that person. I don't need to look them in the eye. I will treat them like an other. And then the Samaritan, who there is this great racial divide between this and the person who's on the road, what does he do? He sees, and he cares, and he sees his neighbor. It's exactly what Jesus asked at the end. Which one of these was a neighbor to the one on the street? And the answer is the Good Samaritan. I mean, that's how God has loved us. He has looked down and he has seen, and though he has every right to distance himself from us, he has become one of us and he calls us to do the same. To look and to see someone who, no matter how different they are, no matter how irritating they are, no matter how much they are opposing us, are those who bear God's image and are loved by God and therefore worthy of our respect and love. You know, I was uh, a few weeks ago with my family. We saw documentary, Won't You Be My Neighbor? Um, it's about Mr. Rogers. And uh, it was very dusty uh, in the movie theater because my eyes were clearly watering. And, you know, that's just because, you know. I mean, I, I don't know if I've been to a movie where I have felt so moved. And I was thinking, why am I so moved by this film that, you know, tears are welling up in my eyes? It's not because there was anything terribly sad. There were no tragedies. It was just that there was something beautiful. Because this person, and of course, he's no saint compared to others. He's, he is a normal man, but yet he was someone who quite literally was absolutely committed to seeing in every single person, no matter how old or how young, his neighbor who is worthy of his respect. And in doing this, he was pleasing God and worshiping him. Because that's what worship looks like. So that's what we see in the sixth commandment. Just also briefly looking at the ninth commandment, where we're commanded, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. And, and what we're being taught by God here is that worship involves upholding the truth faithfully. The truth is something that God cares deeply about. It's one of God's greatest gifts. If you think about it, the very way that he made us and he made this world, it was to help us to know things. He gave us eyes and then shone light down so that we could see. He gave us intellect and made this world discoverable. He loves us knowing truth because the more we understand the way things truly are, the more that we come to know him who is at the heart of all reality. And what that means is whenever we are, are hiding the truth, whenever we are obscuring it, distorting it, deceiving, what we are doing is we are depriving people of the gift that God wants to give them. And so God says, I am a God who loves truth and I love my people. Here's what it means to worship me. Uphold the truth. 
This is, by the way, one of the great tragedies of, of so many of the scandals that are happening in, in churches right now, where you hear not just about terrible things happening in terms of, 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 of abuse, but the cover-up, the hiddenness, the, the, the belief that somehow God would be honored if we just don't let the truth out. It's contrary to what God says. Upholding the truth is what it looks like to worship. But what I want us especially to consider this morning is actually the very specific command we have in verse 9. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Now, that, that's court language. I mean, literally, it's, it's saying that if you are in a court when you are testifying, do not say things that are wrong about the person against whom you're testifying. But it's extending beyond that. The command is really saying we must not misrepresent others. When we speak, when we write, whatever we say about another person, we must be very careful to uphold the truth about that person. Now, if you just think about what that is saying for a moment, and you think about our present context then I hope you see that these words are actually tremendously relevant to us today. If you are someone who holds a particular political position, my guess is if you know someone who disagrees with you, who's in the press, is going to start talking about your position, you're just assuming that they're going to completely get it wrong. They will, you know, mischaracter it. They might have just like a couple true things about what you might believe, but then they're going to completely distort it, or they might just tell outright lies. And that doesn't matter which position you hold. We've just come to realize that that's the way it's going to be, whether it's coming from the right or coming from the left. There's an entire cottage industry of places like Snopes.com and others because no one seems to be worried about letting facts get in the way of a good story. And so every week we're hearing about how, you know, this company puts sawdust in their food or, or this company donates all their proceeds to Satan and, and people just forward it along. We're bearing false witness is what this is happening. And it's not like the church is immune from this. It's all too common that when you see two teachers or two positions where people disagree with each other, to see one position completely mischaracterizing what the other people believe, because it's so much easier to score points if you make their position look a shadow of what it actually is. It's bearing false witness. And I think what is important for you and me to understand is that whenever you and I post on social media an article that distorts, we are also bearing false witness. When we hear a rumor and we pass it along, we're bearing false witness. When we, when we hear of of one side of a story, and we don't have all the facts, but we still make a decision and condemn and tell people what we think about it without actually knowing things, you and I are bearing false witness. See, God says, if you, if you worship me, if you love me, you are going to be passionately careful with upholding the truth. I mean, just a, a rule of thumb, let me encourage all of us, including myself, 
Because we're in a, such a day and age where this is so countercultural that unless we talk about it and think about it, we won't do this right. Whenever you are, whether it's publicly or even privately, speaking negatively about another person's position, let me encourage you, before you say anything, first, make sure you have so understood where that person is coming from that you could restate the position and that person could say, yes, you've got that right. That is what I believe. Anything less, and we're falsely characterizing them. Or let me encourage you, if you hear about some scandal and you've only heard one side of the story, don't say anything until you have heard the other side. I mean, one of my favorite Proverbs, Proverbs 18, 17, says, the one who states his case first seems right until the other comes and examines him. And the point is, it's always, if we hear one side, it's easy to make a decision about what happens until suddenly we hear the other side, and we realize, wait a second, this is much more complicated. And if we just, with a little bit of information, speak about it, make decisions about it, share about it, we are bearing false witness. We are in such a hyper-reactive age, aren't we? There is so much pressure to have hot takes, to think quickly. If you're on social media, if you're on Twitter, the, the feeling is unless you say something immediately condemning, then clearly you're on the other person's side. And basically all the pressure is to bear false witness. And James instead says, be slow to speak, quick to listen. Following Christ faithfully, worshiping means we are slow to speak and we take great pains to understand. This is hard work. It takes effort to make sure we really understand where the other person is coming from, to listen to sometimes if we have someone who disagrees with us, to say, here's what I think you're saying, please tell me if I'm wrong, before we make any final decisions about it or tell anyone else about it. But it's what worship looks like. My point is, if, if this feels like we're kind of getting far afield to you, like we were talking about worship and now we're talking about posting on Facebook and I don't see the connection, that's exactly the point. That, that in the practical day in and day out activity of our lives, that is what worship looks like. It looks like being careful with Facebook or being careful with how we speak about others. It looks like being sure that when we see someone that bothers us to actually pay attention to who they truly are and not some caricature where we've, we've dehumanized them. It looks like, as, as the fifth commandment reminds us, to, to show deference to authority even when sometimes they're hard to get our respect. It, it looks like submitting our body and our desires to the loving constraints God gives us of marriage, as we read in the seventh commandment. It looks like being passionate about economic justice, being careful not to be greedy or to hoard, but to pursue everyone being able to receive what they need for life, as we see in the ninth commandment. Worship means Learning in our hearts to celebrate when other people are able to enjoy things that we're not able to get, as we see in the Tenth Commandment. Do you see how practical worship is? God, unlike any other religion that I know of, what we see here in the Ten Commandments is God saying, if you love me, if you want to give your life to me, to worship me, you are going to be careful and you're going to love 
others because I love them, because they bear my image. This is, this is what we're called to in worship. This is the surprise that we see in the Ten Commandments. Now, the great news of the gospel is that not only does God call us to this kind of worship, but he gives us this kind of worship. We said this last week, but it bears repeating. Whenever we think of us and how we seek to live our lives pleasing to God, we must always remember that it is never you alone before God. That the gospel declares that when you put your faith in Jesus, you and Jesus are worshiping side by side. That you are in Christ. Christ is the one who looks on the one who is sick or different and loves him and goes to the cross for him. Christ is the one who says, for this reason I came to bear witness to the truth, and he dies for it. Christ is the one who submits himself to the Father. Christ is the one who delights in the joy of others. Christ is the one who worships God perfectly, and if you are in Christ, then your worship is perfected in him. And if you are in Christ, part of the good news of the gospel is that this is what God is making you into. I'll tell you, one of my great frustrations as I've been thinking this through this week is how much less loving I am than I should be. Perhaps you feel this way. I, I long to grow in my capacity to love because I see the beauty of it, and I see my inadequacy. But the great news of the gospel is I know that is not what I will one day be. And that is not what you one day will be. Because in Christ, he is giving us his love and his joy and his faithfulness that we together might be the beautiful, worshiping people that God has created to be. And that is surprising, and that is delightful, and that is our hope. I invite you, as we respond to God's word, to spend some time in thought and prayer and even confession, and then I'll lead us in a time of corporate confession in a few minutes' time. Father, we approach um, these words, these instructions you give us with both sorrow and joy. Um, speaking personally, and maybe speaking for many of us, there is sorrow because we know that what you call us to is good, and yet we know how far short we fall of it. And we see how though you love others, yet we hurt the very ones that you love through our selfishness, our pride, our defensiveness, our impatience. 
Father, we grieve over our sinfulness and we ask for your forgiveness. And yet we also come with joy knowing that you are a forgiving God, that we are in Christ and our sins are dealt with. And what's more, that you are renewing us and remaking us into the beautiful people that you have called us to be. And so, Father, even as we confess, even as we take hold of the forgiveness that is ours, we pray with longing that more and more you would grow our hearts, not only in love for you, but also in love for others, that we might be the people you've called us to be. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hear the good news of the gospel from Psalm 130. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, Lord, who could stand? But there is forgiveness with you, so that you may be revered. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is great power to redeem. It is he who will redeem Israel from all of its iniquities. Brothers and sisters, hear the good news. The steadfast love of the Lord is found in Jesus Christ. In him, your sins are forgiven and you are redeemed. Thanks be to God.